0: As we, uh, as we finished last week, we finished chapter 9. We saw that Romans chapter 9 is a, a, a chapter that really focuses on the sovereignty of God. That it, it's, it's his ball and his ball game and he makes the rules and we are invited to play. <laughs> that it's not about us. We also saw that man's responsibility is not ignored. It's actually covered, promoted in that chapter as well. And, and you know, in, just as we move away from chapter 9 into chapter 10 this morning, uh, one comment I would have is, is chapter 9 is a, <laughs> it's a chapter that people really like to argue about. And in my mind, I think that that diminishes the, the purpose in context of what Paul the Apostle was trying to convey to the people. Because we can get all caught up in these deals, uh, you know, the sovereignty of God, the, the, you know, the election of God and the free will of man and all of that, which are important to understand. We've talked about that, so I won't belabor it again, but we can miss what he was trying to say. And that's really summed up in the last verse of chapter nine where the apostle Paul writes, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense and whoever believes on him will not be put shame. So quoting Isaiah here, what he's saying is that unbelieving Israel for the Jews that had not come to Christ, that there are really two responses to Jesus. The first is that some would be offended and that they would stumble. We've talked about stumbling in the last couple of studies and again, don't need to go into it again, but they would trip over Jesus. They would trip over God's choice of Messiah. They would trip over God's method of salvation, didn't like it. So they would be offended. But the other side of that is that some would believe that they would actually come to Christ. Now, before we go to Romans 10, I want to start in the book of Acts chapter nine. So if you'd open there, if you have your Bible, uh, we're going to get into Acts chapter nine. I'm going to summarize the first few verses and then we'll actually get into the text. So what Acts nine is talking about is prior to his conversion, uh from Judaism to Christianity, uh, there on the road to Damascus, the Apostle Paul, then known as Saul of S- Saul of Tarsus actually, uh, he'd been a bloodthirsty man. Uh, he was. He'd seen Christians and the rise of Christianity as a formidable threat against Judaism. He was out to get them. He'd been blindly enraged, actively engaged in standing against the believers of Jesus. He was absolutely zealous in his opposition. He was full of zeal towards persecuting the church. He tells us that also in Philippians chapter Uh, 3. And he persecuted them in any and every way that he could, even up to their deaths. Uh, We see in the book of Acts, uh, a couple of chapters before this, that Stephen, the martyr, was there and Paul was holding the cloaks of the men who were stoning him to death. All of that, happened in Saul's life up until he saw the light there on the road to Damascus. By the way, when you hear that term, oh, they saw the light, that actually comes from here in Acts chapter 9. And Paul literally saw the light so bright that it knocked him to the ground, blinded him, and there he was on this road headed towards Damascus when Jesus personally got a hold of this man's life. So here in verse 3 of Acts chapter 9, we see a light flashing down from heaven, Saul being knocked to the ground, hearing a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting them? That's not what it says. He says, why are you persecuting me? I would imagine that got Saul's attention. He he immediately asked, who are you and what do you want? (laughs) Essentially, he says, says, who are you? And, And and the Lord said, I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. In other words, Paul, Saul, I've been goading you with the truth, and you've been kicking against it all this time, even getting really visceral in your response to Christians and Christianity, and going out, setting out to persecuting these people, when I have been revealing myself to you in your heart. You're pushing against me, Saul, and implied, I don't like it. I've got your attention now. So Saul asks, what do you want? Jesus told him to go on to Damascus and there he would receive instructions. So, completely blind now, uh, he has to be led by the hand, uh, from, with the men who are with him, uh, and taken into the city. Somebody's, somebody's car is going off out there. At any rate, so he is taken by the hand into Damascus. And here he spends, in the city, he spends three days with no food and no water. He refused food and water, is what's indicated. And that's where we're going to pick up the text here in Acts 9. In in verse 10, we read, Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas. Not any relation to Judas Iscariot. This is after. For one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying. That's how you walk into this house. You'll see a guy praying. Ananias. And in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. So the lord is showing ananias i want you to go he's show, showing paul or saul later to be paul somebody's going to come so he makes this connection and ananias uh, he'd heard about this guy uh, he answered and said lord i've heard from many about this man and how much harm he's done to your saints in jerusalem and here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call upon your name But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. He says, for I'll show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. In verse 16 of Acts 9. So it fascinates me that here is Saul, uh, having up until now gotten it all wrong, devoting himself to making the followers of Christ suffer. (laughs) Now God, having touched this man's life at the deepest level, showing him that in getting it right concerning Christ, he would now be the one to suffer. Uh, I, I take encouragement from that because we know, and we've talked about it at length in these studies in Romans, that suffering is part of this life. Uh, becoming a Christian doesn't mean that you're spared from suffering. Jesus never promises to keep us from suffering. He promises to walk with us through suffering. Important dis- distinction to make. Uh, going on in Acts 9, in verse 17, it says that Ananias went to his way and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you came has sent me that you may receive your sight and... Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales. I I can only imagine. I mean, (laughs) maybe some some good Hollywood CGI graphics would do this justice. It doesn't say there were scales, but the only way that that this can be described is it was something like scales, is what Luke writes here in Acts. Uh, It says, He received his sight at once, immediately. And he arose and was baptized. So then he when he received food, he was strengthened. And then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. So here, Saul's spiritual blindness to the things of God had been demonstrated to him very graphically, I might add, by the Lord, uh, through him being made physically blind. Now, being filled with the Holy Spirit, Saul receives his sight. But I think there's, I believe personally, it doesn't say, so I'm heavily into interpretation here. I want you to know that. But I do believe that there was a lot more going on here in this scene with Ananias and Saul than him regaining his physical eyesight. By the Spirit's power, I believe that the scales of hatred, the scales of unbelief, the scales of dead religion, the scales of self-righteousness and sin fell from Saul's eyes that day. How do we know this? Moving on in Acts chapter 9, verse 20. It says, Immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogues as uh, that he is the Son of God. So here, this miraculous about face, this turnaround, his repentance being seen, turning from being a persecutor of the church. Now, once he's realized in his own mind I have had this so wrong. I need to get to my brothers. I need to get to the to the the Jews. I need to get to my countrymen and I've got to let them know that I've had this wrong. That Jesus is the Christ. He's the son of God. So we're told that he was in prayer that he couldn't see and didn't drink or eat anything. But during that time I want you to to think with me uh, for a minute the, uh, about the way that he would have been looking at things in his own mind that he had experienced. Imagine with me for a moment what it must have been like for him during those first few days. Thinking that he was fully justified in the treatment of the followers of Christ, now fully realizing he'd been dead wrong. Imagine in his mind's eye, seeing the faces, perhaps, of those men and women, the families whom he had persecuted, chased down, hunted down, either incarcerated or attended to their deaths. We would look at him in our day as a religious terrorist, straight up. He was a bad dude. And now with the full conviction that he had been wrong, perhaps seeing in his mind again, the face of Stephen as the killing blows of those rocks struck, driving him to the ground, hearing Stephen cry out and plea for God to forgive As he fell to the ground. Hearing over and over again. uh, The voice of Jesus. uh, During those three days where he's blind. He's in prayer. And he's thinking about the things that are taking place. In his life. In his heart. In his physical well-being. That Jesus had questioned him. As to why he was persecuting him. Uh, Folks my point in all of this. Is I don't believe the weight of how severely. Paul had himself stumbled. Uh, I don't think that, that hit his realization of how completely wrong he had been uh, about God prior to his surrendering his life to Christ. I don't believe that ever left him. Repeatedly, he refers to himself as the chief of sinners. He, re, he, he refers to himself as being a former persecutor of the church. Decades later now, we see he has the same sense of urgency, which he had since he begun when he started going into those synagogues. And he'd been in a lot of synagogues by the time he writes the book of Romans. It was a great burden in his heart. He wanted to let his people know just how much they had stumbled. Uh, And that still captivated his heart. He needed, this was a need, this wasn't just something he chose to do. He needed to appeal to his brothers, to his countrymen. So we see here, it's interesting, so the, the... how things get transposed in his life, a picture of the one who formerly stumbled and was no longer going to and appealing to, having a great burden for those who were presently stumbled and didn't think that they were. Amazing. Now, the way that they did things in the synagogues, he had been, as I mentioned, a great many synagogues uh, all across the empire from the time of his salvation, the time that the Lord got a hold of him. And what they did in the synagogues, it's, I was thinking about it. It's a lot like, and, and ladies, you, you probably have this in your women's study as well. But I think about like the guys' study on Tuesday night, where it's a dialogue, it's a discussion. Uh, it, you know, we we go through the scripture together and all of that. That's what they did at synagogue. It wasn't the classic like we see the where the pastor gets up and teaches for sometimes longer than you want, where the pastor gets up and and there's no interaction with the people. It was was a dialogue. That's why, like Jesus, you see him when he takes the scroll of Isaiah and he he reads and he says, today this is fulfilled in your presence. And they start having some real serious dialogue with him. I want to drive him out of the city and and throw him off a cliff. My point is it was interactive, Because that's what they did. And and much of what we see here in chapter 10, I believe, is drawn from those exchanges. He knew, he'd been doing this for a long time, and he knew what the objections would be. Let's go to Romans chapter 10, verse 1. He says, brothers, brethren, brothers, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. Notice, uh, the first thing that that occurs to me is, uh, again, no chapter breaks here. He goes right from saying that they had experienced a rock of stumbling and a a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to saying, man, I just, my, my heart's desire is they would come to know Christ. He's not rejoicing that they've stumbled over that stumbling stone. He immediately goes to compassion. And folks, I don't know if you've ever had people stand against you for your faith. But you know, our nature is such as if you push me, what do I want to do? I want to push you back. And yet he's in a position here. He's not pushing back on the Jews for all that they had done for him. We've talked about that. He's saying, you know what? My heart's desire, my prayer is that they would come, that they would be saved. He doesn't stop with expressing his heart's desire. He goes on and he says that that drove him to action and that action is prayer. And he's assuming his prayers are making a difference, that they're being heard because he says that they may be saved. That's his prayer to God for these people. Now, the word saved, it's used several times in this section because people need a savior to be saved. Pretty much, that's what we could conclude. So, the Greek word is soterio, and there's a, a whole subject in Christianity called soteriology, and what that is is it's it's sort of the science or it's the study aspect of the aspects of salvation. And so, when he's saying here, he's saying, "I pray that they would be saved." I, you know, I, as I read this, I remembered growing up. Uh, I, I left home after my junior year in high school, moved 1,100 miles away and uh, enrolled in high school. I wanted to finish high school. It's was like, I'm not going to go this long and then <laughs> not get my diploma. But I, I ended up living on my own. I got three part-time jobs, and, and I lived in Tacoma, Washington, and uh, I grew up in L.A., and uh, rented a house and was doing all that stuff to put myself through high school. And every day when I would drive, I, I lived in town and then, but I had to uh, drive out to Fife, which is a suburb of Tacoma where I went to school. Every day I would drive past this neon sign and it was right at the South 38th street exit. I still remember, I see it in my mind. It was a huge neon sign that was visible from I-5 and it said, Christ is the answer. I would read that, and there would be something really deep within me that would stir. I think, what does that mean? I somehow know that that's important, but what does it mean? They changed the sign later to Jesus cares about you, and he does, but I really like the original. Because 10 years later, it would be 10 years of me kicking against the goats. That was a goad, folks. That was something that the Lord had put in my life to... Just quickened my spirit whenever I saw that, and I saw it every day when I was coming back home from school, and, and, and it would and it would it would kind of get under my skin. I know that's important. I don't understand it, and I would pray sometimes. God, help me to understand what that means. Ten years later, I found that answer, and that it was Christ when He became my Savior, when I was saved. Verse two. He says, for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Now, this is the greatest obstacle that the Jews had. As we've seen, the zeal without knowledge was Paul's condition prior to his own conversion, uh, because the object of his zeal had been all wrong. I need to kill me some Christians. You know That was his, his mind. He was, like I said, a bloodthirsty guy. Very zealous about it. But when Jesus got a hold of him on that road, the object of his zeal changed. He continued to be a very zealous man, but now it would be according to the knowledge that he had that Jesus was the son of God, that he's the Christ and that he's the son of God. That's what we're told here. That's what he says. So I guess what I'm trying to say is that we can be excited. We can be enthusiastic about the things of God. We can be inspired, but those can be actually a a huge, huge detriment in people's spiritual well-being, because if that's done in the absence of knowledge, it leaves you open for anything. Uh, I I love the saying, those (laughs) who don't stand for something are liable to fall for anything. You can be zealous for God, but if it's Zeal, zeal in the absence of knowledge, it's actually, it becomes a dangerous thing. I love it when I see somebody that's on fire for the Lord. I spent some time with a, a young lady this week, my wife and I, that's on fire for the Lord. And, and it was just like, yes, I just love seeing that. And that was a zeal according to knowledge. So. One of the things that the world throws out there is, 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 well, it doesn't really matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. Have you heard that? I've heard that many times. Well, it doesn't really matter. And I was thinking about this and I was thinking, you know, I, when we lived in Northern California, we heated our home with wood and I loved going out and cutting wood. I just thought that was great. But there's a certain way you gotta do it. I thought, you know, this is, what he's saying here is if we were gonna go down that road, it'd be like trying to chainsaw wood with a blindfold on. How's that gonna work for you? It's not. Paul saw this with the Jews. We see it in groups who have departed from a biblically based, gospel-centered teaching. You know, biblical literacy is a thing around here. And that's intentional, that's on purpose, because This is where the answers are. We could come up with all kinds of man's philosophies. We could become very zealous about those. But in the end, they're not going to benefit us a thing. And we can actually harm others because of it. Here's the point. People can be zealous for a religious experience and miss heaven. That was what Paul was appealing to these unbelieving Jews on the basis of. Stacey and I went to, uh, uh, and I use the word loosely, a church one time where I, I we went I, three or four times and we never heard anything close to the gospel, not even remotely. And it didn't take long for us to conclude, eh, we're not going to go back there. <laughs> so he says this is a zeal that's not according to knowledge. What's the knowledge that they lack? Verse three this is for they, they being ignorant of god's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted to the righteousness of god that's the knowledge that they lacked in chapter 9 verses 30 and 31 we saw that the gentiles who didn't pursue righteousness had by faith in christ laid hold of it remember we looked at that last week it's like and the jews were like what are you, what you mean by simple faith I have gotten more righteousness added to my account than I could ever use? Yeah, it's exactly what's being said. On the other hand, Israel, working hard to obtain righteousness by the law of Moses, had not. Why? Back to verse 2. They had a zeal without knowledge. Think about it. With the Jews, you couldn't find anybody that was working harder. Man, they had it. And we'll talk next week about uh, the volumes and volumes and volumes of books, over 500 books that were based on the 613 laws of Moses we see in the Old Testament. You couldn't find anybody that was more zealous for God. I mean, they looked at themselves as the gatekeepers. And they 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 were entrusted with the oracles of God. However, they they severely messed that up. They got off onto their own thing. They'd missed it. They failed to submit to the righteousness of God. They they preferred to attempt obtaining that righteousness on their own. Something I want to note here is taken to a logical end, any works-based so-called gospel has at its core, spoken or not, the thought that the atoning work of Christ, which is uh, accomplished on our behalf, isn't enough. Truly. I mean, if you start getting into, well, you've got to do this and this and this if you want to be a good Christian. I've heard that. (laughs) I reject that. You're saying that the cross wasn't enough, that it wasn't adequate. It wasn't sufficient. Hogwash. No, it was sufficient. God has made salvation so simple and so easy that we can miss it. Talk about that coming up here. He's, he's gonna get into that here in just a couple of verses. We need the righteousness of God to be transferred to us because the standard is perfection, moral perfection. And it's impossible to add to that. There's no way, once you understand the nature of the gospel, that perfection is the ideal. It is the key. And the only one that ever added anything to the law of Moses, as far as obedience goes, was Christ. Perfectly obedient. So the huge stumbling block for the Jew was that they couldn't make their own. Nobody can. Verse four, he says, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now he says, Christ is the end of the law, not the abolition of the law. He didn't come to abolish it. In in Matthew chapter five, verse 17, Jesus says, don't presume that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. There's a difference. Jesus wanted to make it clear that he had authority apart from the law of Moses but not in contradiction to it. He added nothing to the law except that one thing that I just mentioned that he had become perfectly obedient. So the question becomes then was Jesus judged by the law of Moses at the cross? Yes, he was. However, he was completely exonerated because he had fulfilled it. He, he perfectly fulfilled the law of Moses. That's why the effect of the law is terminated at the cross. Thus, he is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. What Paul is saying here. It's simply believe and receive. Nothing added. It's, and it's, you err greatly if you try to add. And many religious institutions out there add. It's Grace plus nothing. That's why grace is so amazing. Verse five, he says Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law. And, and quote, the man who does these things shall live by them. He quotes here Leviticus eighteen, verse five, uh, where he writes, You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. Quoting back into the Old Testament, Paul is constantly going back to the word of God to support the the claims that he's making here. So Moses wrote that the man who achieved uh, the righteousness which the law demands shall live by doing so. The emphasis is on doing. However, this is a statement, it, it presents an unattainable ideal. What it's saying is that if a man can keep the law perfectly, and perpetually, that he wouldn't be condemned to death. Here's the problem with that. The law was given to people who already were sinners. The law was given to people who were already condemned. Uh, I, I always think of the woman caught in adultery, thrust down there in front of Jesus, and he starts to rot on the ground, and the guys that are there ready to kill her, to stone her, they drop their rocks, beginning with the oldest, and they leave. He says, where are your your accusers? And she said, they're gone, Lord. And he said, neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. Why did he say that? Because he knew that she was already condemned. James chapter two, verse 10 sums it up. James writes, he says, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. So if you want to base your life, your relationship with God on rule keeping, it, 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 look at it, Six hundred as I mentioned, 613 laws. You've got to keep those 100% of the time. How possible is that for a lifetime, let alone since you got out of bed this morning? <laughs> I know me. I think I know you. It's not possible. You can be very zealous for those things, but a zeal without knowledge. Here's the point. Those who seek to be justified before God based on their actions are doomed to failure the ineffectiveness of the law is why god prophetically uh, promised even before christ that he would establish a new covenant with israel the covenant of grace summed up in the old testament it was obey and live in the new testament it's live to obey whole different approach far easier. I'm gonna go through verses six through eight and we're gonna come back and we'll take them apart a bit. Uh, And so read with me together, if you would. He says, but the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down from above or who will ascend or descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith, which we preach. Interesting. Paul is now gonna to speak to the Jews about how to obtain salvation, uh, which is to trust in the Savior whom God has sent. However, before he does, uh, in verses six to eight, he explains a couple of things. The first is that salvation is not far away. It's not some lofty ideal. It's not something that's just out of reach. It's not far away. It's close. The second is salvation is not difficult. That's why anybody, the the gospel is open to any man, any woman. It doesn't matter if you've got triple PhDs, if you're a rocket scientist, or you're simply somebody that dropped out of eighth grade and you're just trying to make it through. It doesn't matter because it's not on the basis of our intellect, folks. It's on the basis of his completed work. It's not difficult. You don't have to jump through hoops. So in verse 6 when he says, who will ascend into heaven? He's saying salvation is not through some heroic self-effort. You know, I'm going to work hard. I'm going to get there. That was the Jews' mindset. You know, it was their mindset, but it's also something that poses a real great danger to us. And I don't know about you, but I wrestle sometimes because it's that thing that, that, that's in us that causes us to want to earn it, that causes us to want to do enough good work to maybe see, to make sure that God's happy with me because of something I did. And I'm telling you folks, based on God's word, if your life is hidden in Christ, if you belong to Christ, he is happy with you. Yeah, sometimes he chastens his kids. Sometimes he disciplines us, but that's not because he's unhappy. It's because he loves us. And so when we experience God's chastising hand in our lives, it's actually proof that we belong to him. That's what he says in Hebrews chapter 12. If you are without discipline, you might be an illegitimate son or daughter. So he's saying that it's not this heroic effort and and that it's a real danger because if I'm not thinking I have to earn my salvation, I'm thinking I have to kind of maintain it. I have to do enough good things or I have to, Show up in my church attendance or whatever it is. That's not the point. Do you, here's a question. Do you know anybody who just plain struggles with grace? I've known people, I've known pastors that struggle with grace. Uh, I knew a pastor one time. This guy, he was working so hard to try to make rules for the people in his church. And he was sort of taking upon himself something that a pastor should never take on. He thought it was his job to fix people. Folks, that's a slippery slope. I've shared before, I'll share it again. When I was first brought on to the board at a Calvary Chapel in Northern California, back in, I think it was 1987, my pastor for 30 years, Bob, (laughs) this is his name, he got up in my face and he stuck his finger in my face. He said, now you listen to me. These are not your sheep. It's not up to you to try to fix them. It's up to you to love them, to pray for them, come alongside, pour into them, but they're not your sheep. And I was kind of stricken at the moment and just kind of said, yes, sir. Because he said that with all of the force of the Holy Spirit. And again, I've mentioned before, it was probably... Some of the greatest, not probably, it was some of the greatest advice I ever received as, as a Christian going into Christian leadership. And I've known people that they want to fix people. What they're doing in that is subtly they're putting a works-based trip on them. Because if you ever get to the point where you're thinking, well, once I do this, well, then God will be happy with me, you've missed it. And we slip into that, don't we? I do. I struggle at times. Paul addresses uh, the unbelieving Jews because he knows that they struggled. They struggled with that very thing. And and, and he dives into the Old Testament. He quotes Deuteronomy chapter 30, uh, beginning of verse 11. He says, For this commandment which I command you today is not too mysterious for you, nor is it far off. I love that. It's not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend into heaven for us to bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? So what, what he's saying here is of salvation. He's saying salvation is not far off. You don't need to ascend into heaven to get it. By the way, that's what religion does. Man, gonna, I'm going to make my way to God. Man reaching up into heaven. Self-effort. So why don't we need to reach up? Why isn't that the premise of the gospel that we're seeing here? Simple. That's already been done. We don't reach up because God sent Jesus down. For he so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It's already happened. It's nothing that we need to do in that. But believe it and receive it. Christianity is not about man reaching up to God. Remember, they tried that at the Tower of Babel. It didn't go very well for them. They ended up scattered with all these different Languages and all of that. They thought, well, we're going to just build this, this tower. We're going to, we're going to reach up to God. And how many religions are oriented towards that type of an approach? They may not even say it openly, but, uh, implied, heavily implied, is it's all about what you do. I came from a false religion I grew up in, and it wasn't about being saved by grace. It was being saved by grace by obedience to the laws and ordinances of the gospel, by water baptism, and by my good works. And when I came into a relationship with Christ, I was the one that realized that I had been stumbling over Christ. I was the one looking back at that sign on I-5 years before, thinking, I don't understand how Christ is the answer. But then, coming to that place, realizing fully, I had been wrong about My understanding of God, it had influenced me in many, many ways and I had used that influence in people's lives around me. That's what the Jews were doing here. See, it's not about reaching up into heaven. It's about God reaching down to man. The Jews struggled. With this they, they did not like it. you know think about here's an old guy, perhaps he's living you know in Philippi or wherever a, a, a Jewish man this is, there were Jewish colonies all throughout the empire that's why paul when he, whenever he would show up in town from that very first time where he had to get to the synagogue after he had been there on the road to damascus and and his eyes are open and he and he sees now that he's been very zealous for the wrong stuff that he wanted to go into the city. Every time he'd show up in a a town, you read in the book of Acts, that he goes straight to the synagogue. He goes straight to the Jews because he was commissioned there, we see it in Acts 9, to to bring the gospel before kings and Gentiles and to the children of Israel. He was being faithful to the call, but he had a zeal now according to knowledge and he had to do this. He, I don't believe that he could have not. God's call was that strong in this man's life. So you got some guy that, like I said, maybe he lives in Philippi and he's been a Jew all his life. Maybe he's a grandfather. You know, and he came up in the law of Moses and, and I mean, and seven times a year he'd go to the national feast and make the pilgrimage to Jerusalem at least three times. The three were mandatory of the, of the, the rest. At any rate, he'd go to Jerusalem for the feast and, and he would go to temple and he would sacrifice and, you know, do the whole atonement thing and, and he was a faithful Jew. And then when he brought his children up, he saw to it that they carried that baton forward. Now you guys, this is how we live. We're Jews and this is what we do. This is how we find not only our spiritual identity, but our national identity. Because Judaism was not just go to, Go to, go to a temple or, or or go to synagogue on Saturday. It was a life. All of a sudden, this guy comes breaking through. This, this guy comes drifting into town. And he says, let me tell you something. It was all for nothing. It doesn't count in your life. How offended would you be? How offended were the Jews? Every time he would open his mouth, they would try to kill him. And and if you put yourself in their place, you can see where this would be a huge, huge stumbling block. And yet the truth remains. However, it wasn't that God just took that away from them. He said, look, you can still be Jewish if you want. I mean, there are Messianic Jews. I know some. Uh, and, and wonderful. They love the Lord. And they've, they've retained their Jewish heritage. We'll talk about that more in chapter 11. But the point is, is that he says, look, I've not just taken that away because I'm being a cruel God. I have made it infinitely easier. It's not just that that none of that counts. It's that it's been taken out of the way. You don't have to reach up for God. You don't have to go low. You don't have to do any of that. You simply have to believe that Jesus came to this earth, that God brought Jesus down, that he walked this earth, that he accomplished your redemption, that he went to that cross to pay for your sins, that he was risen from the dead because his sacrifice judged by the law of Moses was found to be acceptable in the eyes of the father and that he rose from the dead, giving us power simply by believing all of that. And you don't have to do a thing for it. The Jews, they, they really wrestled with it. I understand their wrestling. I understand. I mean, you've been doing this for all your life. You taught your kids and now your grandkids. And, and all of a sudden, the, the whole thing shifted. But the point is, is that these people, I mean, and then they would come also, just to add this, they would come to the knowledge that, oh, and not only has all of that added up to nothing in my life, but you're telling me that the Gentiles... And they would probably say that with a bit of disdain, the Gentiles, because they didn't like them. They get a free pass. Are you serious? They don't have to do anything? The dogs, and they referred to the Gentiles as dogs. That's how they looked at them. Horrible stumbling block for these people. But he's saying, look, it's not far away. Heaven is within your reach, O Jew as well as Gentile. Verse 7, he says there, uh, who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. So he's saying that we don't need to go to heaven and bring him down. Now he's saying that we don't need to go into the abyss to bring him up from the dead. Why not? Because Jesus already resurrected. That's been done. God brought him down. God raised him up. He's saying, look, This is the transaction, folks. And this is the nuts and bolts of the crucifixion and the resurrection. This is a complete salvation. What he's talking about is Jesus' death, his burial, and his resurrection. It's the complete deal. He's essentially saying you can't add anything to that salvation because he's already died for our sins. He's already been to the grave. He's already been resurrected from the dead. It's a finished salvation. When Jesus, hanging on that cross, said those words... It is finished. Guess what? It was finished. He had made, as was prophesied all the way back in Daniel, he had made an end to sin. He had fulfilled the law. There was nothing left to do but simply trust that he did the work for you. His point with the Jews then as well as our point to those legalists now is pertaining to salvation. It's not that works are unimportant uh, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2 he says that you were saved unto good works that you're not saved as a result of works lest any man should boast but you are saved unto good works that's true but pertaining to salvation your works are good for nothing verse 8 he says but what does it say the word is near you in your mouth in your heart, that is the word of faith which we preach. Now this gets, this is a verse that gets twisted by the word faith teachers. This is not saying that you get to boss God around. I'm sorry. I know you'd like to do that, <laughs> but, but this is, it is taken totally out of context that the word is near you. You know, out of, we speak blessings and cursings and that we can, you know, command God to do these things and all. It, it, hogwash. It's not, it's not what Paul's talking about at all. He's talking about the Jews being stumbled, how he was previously stumbled and that he saw the light and now his great burden is to get them unstumbled. So he says, what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith, which we preach. So the gospel isn't saying that I must perform some superhuman feat in either going up to bring Jesus down or going down to bring Jesus up. So what is it saying? If it's not saying that, here and Paul once again he reaches back to quote Deuteronomy chapter 30 verse 14 uh as he's saying that it's about the word being near you in your mouth in your heart he's saying the gospel is near it's accessible it's intelligible the gospel is easily obtained and it can be expressed in one's conversation in your mouth And it can be readily understood in the mind or in the heart. That's what he's saying. It's very simple. Folks, there's a principle with Bible study, and it will help you from getting off with passages like this where people peddle the word of God cheaply. And that's simply look for the simplest possible explanation. What he's saying is you can't bring Christ down. Already happened. You can't bring him up. Already happened. So what, what is it? What's left? Just believe it. Understand that the gospel is right there. God's written it in your heart. It's intelligible. It it could not be simpler. There's no long journey. You don't have to do a pilgrimage to some place. Salvation can happen in an individual's heart no matter where. No matter where they are. It can happen in this room and has. And I trust will again. Can happen with somebody watching online as these, uh, messages are broadcast and recorded. Salvation is near. Because God's done it all. Every bit of it. He brought Jesus down. He raised Jesus up. So how near is it? Verse 9. He says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you Shall be saved. That's how near. That's how simple. That's how elegant this word is. That's how it has not changed in 2,000 years. That's how it is still applicable as applicable today as the, the day that Jesus accomplished it, as the day that the Apostle Paul recorded it in his writing to this church in Rome. Not complicated, gang. Very simple. Powerful, the most singular, most important decision a person could ever make to confess with their mouth the Lord Jesus, to believe in their hearts that God raised him from the dead. He says, if, if you've got that down, you'll be saved. The word saved is an interesting word, by the way. In the original, as I mentioned, the, 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 the Greek word is soteria. But it also it translates preserved. I like that. As you confess with your mouth, believe in your heart, you'll be preserved. Preserved from what? Folks, wrath is real. We've looked at that early in the book of Romans. Hell is real. You want to be preserved? Not only to have uh, the promise of eternal life in the presence of God, but you want to be preserved so that your life is preserved, so that you can spend eternity with Him, but you also are preserved and set apart to have a life here that is wonderful without measure. Do we go through stuff? Oh yeah, we go through stuff, don't we? And yet knowing that the Lord is near, knowing that he upholds me when I'm down, knowing that he soothes me when I hurt, knowing that he in that day will wipe away every tear. And you know, He comes to us in our affliction now. He preserves us. Where are you this morning in your relationship with Christ? Have you perhaps had some things wrong? Perhaps had a zeal that wasn't according to knowledge? You don't have to be a Bible scholar to have that knowledge. Like I said, it's simple. Ask the Lord to probe your heart. Be like me, and I don't mean be like me, <laughs> but be like me when I would drive down I-5 as a teenager. I was 17 years old, and I'd see that sign. Christ is the answer. And it bugged me. And I mean, it didn't bug me like I got angry about it, but it, it got under my skin. And and for years, that would be a goad. Whenever I would think about that, it was a goad. It was something that the Lord was using to prompt me, to to give me that, Thing in my heart that I knew that there was something more about religion. There was something more about Jesus. I'd been raised in the Mormon church. I knew there was something more. I didn't know what it was. And I remember, uh, again, as I, when I was 10 years old, holding a Bible in my bedroom, trying to read it, sincerely trying to read it and going, this doesn't make any sense at all. And I prayed, God, help me to understand what this means. And then 18 years later, walking through the parking lot of the Bible college that God had called me to go through and I'm just, I'm walking through and I'm sort of feeling kind of condemned and weird and thinking, Lord, I don't know why I'm here. I'm just a sign painter. I was working as a sign painter at the time. I don't know what I'm doing here at this Bible college. I don't know what I'm here with these Bible scholars and all that. And the Lord spoke to my heart in that moment. He said, you asked me for this. You asked me to open my word to you when you were 10 And now I'm going to do it. I wept. I was so moved. That was a goad. What's goading you? If you don't belong to Christ, or if you have been perhaps walking away from him in the deeper areas of your life, allow God's word this morning to be a goad. Let it be something that pokes you, that drives, that gets under your skin, that prompts you to make a response. Not hard. Very simple. Very straightforward, easy to understand. Let him do that work in you. If you don't know Christ, simply pray. Pray a prayer something like, God, I realize that I've had it wrong. Trying to live my life for myself. Trying to live my life for maybe for my friends or whatever it is. But I realized this morning that you got it right. And I believe you're opening my eyes to see that. And I I want you, Jesus, I I I ask you to forgive me for my sins to cleanse me and, and to come in to my heart and to give me the, the life that your word speaks of here. Salvation is near. He says if you confess that with your mouth and you believe that in your heart, you'll be saved. Wonderful news. It's why the gospel is called good news. Let's pray. Father, I just, I, there's so much here. <laughs> if we were running out of time, I feel like I'd just keep going because the, your word is so rich. It is so fresh. It is so abundantly clear that you love us with an eternal love that we can't quite understand. I can't wrap my mind around it. I can't wrap my heart around it, but I'll sure receive it. Thank you, Lord and in the quietness of our hearts. If there's anyone here, anyone watching online, if that transaction that I've described is the one that you're making, take it to him. Release your life to Jesus. Let the weight of your life down onto him. He says, when you're weary, when you're when you're all burdened down, when you're heavily laden, come to me. I'll give you rest for your souls. So we thank you, Lord, that you brought Jesus down. You brought him up from the grave, or that you in all of it did it for one reason, to give us life. Not just life here, but eternal life. Our hearts are grateful this morning. We commit ourselves afresh to you and to that work that you desire to accomplish in each of us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.